All right, and welcome to the show. This upload is coming to you January 4th, 2016, and welcome to the new year. You're listening to the Post Money Plan Podcast. This week, we'll be picking up with part two of the anti-consumerism discussion. In part one, we covered what we mean by consumerism, why consumerism is bad, and the results of consumerism. Now in part two, we're going to debate the causes of consumerism, the merits of capitalism and socialism, what people should do instead of consumerism, and the benefits of reduced consumerism. The episode is hosted by myself, Dallas Post, founder of the Post Money Plan, and my guest again is Michael Ferris, a professor of Arabic at the University of Houston. So I'll go ahead and play back his intro for you. So my name is Michael Ferris. I'm a professor at the University of Houston, one of the largest public universities in the country. Uh, I consider myself an educator first and foremost. I teach the Arabic language. I hope to be able to contribute something of value to the discussion today, if not in direct economic terms, then in, in terms of maybe shifting, expanding, bringing new angles to the perspective on what consumerism is and why it's not a good thing. So with that, we'll jump back into it. What do you think are the causes of consumerism? Well, I'd like to differentiate it between causes originating from an individual psychology versus causes originating from societal structural incentives of an economic system, because I think the two are different. Okay. I'll just repeat that to clarify. I think we should differentiate between what's going on in someone's brain when making a decision versus how an economy is set up when determining causes and solutions. And like I've said before, I tend to lean towards really addressing the human psychology part of it. So in terms of that individual psychology, I think the belief that personal purpose and value are derived from possessions is part of the biggest problem. And I mean, that's what I kind of discussed when we we're talking about why consumerism is bad. If someone's deriving all their purpose in life from possessions, that's an empty, meaningless life. And so I think that's a huge problem. The second problem in individual psychology, the envy of others, where people see others around them living a certain lifestyle. And it's even worse because of broader networks like TV and Internet, where you have access to see, you know, someone in some rural town that is very poor then has access to see like all these people in Hollywood and in movies and think, hey, I should have that. And that also can create the uh, keeping up with the Joneses effect where you see your neighbor and you say, oh, they have a fancy car and a big house. I should have that too, without regard to like their situation or your situation and just assume that, oh, well, if they have it, I should have it too. And it can create that kind of perpetual treadmill where, oh, they got a new car, so I need a new car. And then, oh, their kids went to this fancy school, so I need to send my kids to the fancy school without regard to what your income is or that kind of thing. So envy of others is number two. And then the third one is a lack of personal financial education and discipline where people don't realize how much they can afford to spend. So then they don't budget within their means or even have a plan on how much they plan to spend just in regular living. Then also people borrow money more willingly than they should. And then people spend inefficiently. So all those combined leads to an absolute disaster. So just summarizing there, what I think about the individual psychology part of the problem of consumerism is the belief that personal purpose and value are derived from possessions, envying others, and a lack of personal financial education and discipline cause a huge part of the problem. It's a good summary of the individual psychological causes of consumerism. Yeah, I would agree with all of those. 
for the most part. I don't have any disagreements with you there. Okay, so speaking back to the distinction you made between individual psychology and social structure, I agree that those are distinct. But I would also say that in certain ways, to a large degree, they can overlap and they influence each other because it's ultimately people and values and culture that leads to and defines a social system, and in turn, a social system that leads to and influences and defines people's ideas and values. That's a fair point. These two things work back and forth in tandem on each other, and they mutually define each other in this kind of equilibrium, because social structures and institutions are ultimately run by people and So one of the ways I would define consumerism, maybe to go back to defining consumerism, something now I think we can add to our definition after all of this discussion, is that perhaps consumerism, first and foremost, is a culture. It's a cultural value or a cultural norm. It's this thing that is perhaps much more subconscious for us than we're willing to admit. And I think that corporate interests, if you just look at banks, for example, the five huge banks that control the vast majority of the wealth in this country, their system of doing business is almost entirely predicated upon the selling of debt to the American masses. So it becomes nebulous, or I don't want to say nebulous, it becomes harder to talk about individual responsibility in a vacuum when you have this culture You have the dominant banking culture of can't afford it, just take on debt because nobody can afford anything. Because if most people are making wages that are far too insufficient to afford even basic necessities, then it becomes a survival thing to take on debt. Well, this might sound nebulous and counterintuitive to you, given my capitalist perspective, but I believe modern day banks shouldn't exist in the way that they do. Because I agree 100% with you. In fact, I think the Federal Reserve probably should never have been created. Now we're getting to the arguments that I want to get to. (laughs) All right, okay, let's hear it. From the economic system perspective and, and capitalistic incentives, I believe excessive consumerism and capitalism are not codependent. So I think we disagree there. But I don't think you need excessive consumerism to have a healthy capitalist system. And I would say capitalism encourages productivity and hard work and efficiency. And so capitalism causing everyone to be poor, I kind of think of that as a straw man argument, because I think capitalism is mutually exclusive from the decision of countries to go on a fiat currency system, like we were just saying. So I think the fiat currency is controlled by central banks and then governments then taking advantage of the fiat currency and spending more than they make is really starting to get at the true heart of economic problems. So when you have a fiat currency plus deficit spending, that leads to printing more currency, which devalues the existing currency, which is effectively a tax on the poor. So inflation, when you hear of inflation, that's really a devaluation of the currency. And inflation hurts poor people a whole lot more than it hurts rich people. If the dollar menu at McDonald's, <laughs> we're kind of going back to food, but if the dollar menu goes from $1 up to $2, that doesn't matter to some rich person. But it's a huge impact on some poor person on the street that's asking for handouts and gets a dollar. For a poor family, it could mean skipping a meal, you know what I mean? 
the other point there is that wealthier people own more assets than poor people. So when a government prints more money and causes inflation or essentially the devaluation of existing currency, asset prices go up and the value of the currency goes down. So inflation actually can increase stock market returns, which typically wealthier people have stock market investments and poor right, people don't. Right. So this begs the question, who are the ones influencing government policies? They are the wealthy. They are the ones in control. They are the corporate elite. And it, I think it always has been that way. And if you go back far enough into the history of this country, who created the Federal Reserve? A bunch of rich capitalists who went off to an island and decided they needed to do this in order to protect their wealth and to influence the government to put forward policies that would ensure this. I agree with you, except for the trying to pinpoint it on a specific scapegoat. Because people are going to behave. That, that's what I'm saying I'm about saying, human I'm nature. I'm not talking about a specific scapegoat. I'm, I'm talking about... I guess you and I maybe disagree on the definition of capitalism, but I, I'm operating with the historical understanding that it was always the capitalists who, because they controlled and still control the majority of the wealth in the country, have advantage in leveraging the government to create policies that are in their interest at the expense of the millions of people who are everyday workers trying to get by. Well, I think there's some good points there and some that I would argue with because, yes, that can happen or that has happened in the past. But even in communist systems, the people in power take advantage of that and ruin it. You're that, absolutely that's right. what I'm getting at. Is It's it's right. about human nature, the individual. Yeah, yeah, you're right. You're right. And there's there's actually a very funny, cynical quote that I read on The Onion, actually. It was, the Onion's definition of socialism is basically the view that wealth is better managed by a dysfunctional public entities instead of dysfunctional private entities. So I will give you that. There is that caveat that perhaps the only difference between capitalism and socialism may be the location of wealth in the private sector versus the public sector. And, and given that private and public sectors both have human beings working in them and that human nature is always amenable to greed and corruption and evil and if you want to put a touch to Christian theology there, then you're always going to have these things regardless of the system. So, I mean, you're... See, you're, now, now you're getting to it. That is, you're, see, you're, now you're, you're getting to it. It seems to be that given human nature, capitalism is the better system. But I, I'm, not, I'm still not so sure I, I, I believe that. But I understand where you're coming from. Yeah, see, that's what I'm getting towards. You're going to have corruption in whatever system you have, and unless you change the hearts of people to be more compassionate and caring about others and themselves and find meaning and purpose in life, no system is going to work. Right, I agree with you. But then the question is, what system is most conducive to that, to spreading compassion and understanding and, and really education, I think is what you're touching on. And I would add democracy. And I am very reticent to concede that capitalism is the best system for that, simply because in capitalism, the only thing that ultimately matters is profit. And it just seems like if just on an a priori basis, philosophically speaking, if you, if you want to speak about what are the considerations that should go into moral good and justice, if you want to talk about Christian theology, God's will being done. It just seems that profit motive is, it just seems false. 
that profit motive is somehow sufficient to cover all of those things. All of these other considerations need to go into that, and in order for these considerations to be heard and, and brought into the public sphere, into public discourse, people need to be given a voice. People who run the country just as much as corporate captains of industry, they need to be given an equal voice, and they don't have an equal voice. And the system that we have currently, the sort of oligarchy government, the corporate oligarchy government we have does not give people that voice. Well, tell me what you think of this, bringing in the libertarianism along with the capitalism. So because of what we said about the fiat currency and the Federal Reserve, I would say what we have doesn't truly represent a capitalist system. So if you had a money system that was based not on debt, as the current fiat money system is, where government can spend more than it actually has, and you had a more libertarian society where the government wasn't excessively taxing the citizens, so if you didn't have debt-based currency and then people live their lives where they're not in debt and not heavily taxed, then they truly would have free will in that you wouldn't have that treadmill where you're staying at the job that you don't like because you're afraid of the debt payments. And then you wouldn't be afraid of losing your house because you can't make tax payments and those kind of yeah, things. Yeah, and then the staying at the job you don't like and because the corporate bosses know you have to stay at that job to pay your debt, they can basically cut your hours, abuse you, and have you work in squalid, inhumane working conditions. We don't see those in this country, but we certainly see them in other countries. And I, I don't know, I mean, I see your argument. But then my problem with libertarianism is that still you haven't answered the question of what ought to go into considerations of social justice beyond the profit motive. And the, and the libertarian system does not answer that. If anything, it just takes it to an even further extreme that the profit motive and only the profit motive should be the guiding force of the way society and the, and the economy is set up. And I just I, I disagree with that. It just strikes me as false. Well, that's where I think it's not within the realm. The politics should be a derivative of the culture and not the culture itself. And so what I'm saying is you come from a culture of where you assign value to certain things, like people having a dignified existence, but then also having freedom to make choices and not oppression. So the, the culture itself says we want these things and then within the framework of having libertarian-style freedom, then the culture will manifest itself through the politics and the economics. Yeah, I mean, I still am skeptical, very much so, because I'll give you a specific example that if, if you want to see what a libertarian type of a society would look like, a good country to go to is my own country of Lebanon, where basically the government that exists there is extremely weak, if not non-existent. And the people who have money completely buy influence in the government, and they can do what they want to do, and they can get above laws that they want to get above, all by paying money. And the people who don't have money, they can't even acquire basic services like water and electricity because they don't have money to basically bribe whatever official is, is responsible for that. So, I, I mean, I think a libertarian system, I don't see how a libertarian system would not end up prone to money talks and everyone else walks to a, a system of basically bribery where bribery can prevail. 
If there's not some kinds of checks and balances that are over and above the profit motive alone, maybe I'm misunderstanding your argument. No, I well, I'm not arguing for a pure libertarian society, but what I'm getting at, and I think your example is a fair point, what I'm getting at is that the culture is what's truly important. And the, exactly. What, I, I, that's, what, that's, I think, the number one thing you and I agree on. As much as we have disagreements about which socioeconomic framework is the correct one, I think you and I agree that nothing good is really going to come without cultural change, without people's ideas being changed, and without people working together, and without goodwill. Exactly, yeah. What should people do instead of consumerism? I actually just had a verse from First Timothy where it refers to godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world, and it's certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing, let us be there with content. So my first recommendation is you're not taking things with you after you die. So find contentment not dependent on your possessions, because you're going to lose them sooner or later anyway. Find a greater purpose than just yourself to live for. Something that gives you meaning and purpose, motivation and drive, passion, real happiness, and a zest for life. And then my second recommendation is to become a net producer in society. You create and produce more than you consume and add value to other people's lives, meet other people's needs, and build strong relationships. Those are my thoughts anyway. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, what you've said, I don't think anyone would want to disagree with what you said. I, I certainly don't. I mean, I agree with you. I would add that to what people should do instead of consumerism, I think there's a lot of ways to experience the thrills and joys of life and having fun and really feeling alive that are absolutely free and just don't have anything to do with money at all. And in fact, probably more the case that things that make us feel alive are such because they have nothing to do with money. The love that is shared between friends, between a husband and wife, the joy of just simple activities like sitting with your friends and having a conversation or enjoying the outdoors, seeing the world, traveling different places. I mean, if you, if you neglect whatever expenses are involved in playing tickets and traveling, you know, playing music, making music, making art, camaraderie between people, ultimately that is infinitely more valuable than anything that can be purchased with money. That's something I really, I believe, and I, I think that studies about depression and anxiety and points which you touched on, they point to that also, that one of the best cures for depression and anxiety, or maybe not cure, but one of the best measures to promote spiritual, mental health and well-being is camaraderie with, with your fellow human beings, is, is a social structure, social relationships. Yeah, I think that's a fair point. And... I think that's a good positive note to maybe end our discussion on. This has been a very stimulating discussion, by the way, I have to say. Which, maybe that just leads us into our conclusion of what the benefits are of reduced consumerism. So, like you said, it brings people together, you find more fulfillment than just thinking about your own personal situation. If you had less excessive consumerism in your life, you'd have less debt, less stress, less marriage and relationship strain more happiness and contentment. You'd be able to be more generous. You'd be able to find fulfillment in other areas of life, a more sustainable societal consumption of resources. 
if you think of it that way. And the final point that I want to make is that societal demand will dissipate from unimportant things, encouraging economic development to concentrate on important things. I mean, no one willing to pay for movies or sports or those kind of things, but still willing to pay for education and housing would encourage less business investment in entertainment and more in schools and homes, for example. So that's the final point that I wanted to make. Anyway, that pretty much wraps things up here. So I want to thank you, Michael, for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. And thank you, listeners, for joining us this time. And we'll catch you next time on another edition of the Post Money Plan podcast. 